Uh, please turn with me to Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. You can also follow along on page 8 of your bulletin. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wept my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she has loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of God. <clears throat> the author of the gospel according to Luke, he essentially shares eyewitness accounts uh, to build a holistic understanding of the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus. And here's an account with uh, two people. They're very, very different. One, you have Simon. Secondly, you have this woman. Simon, he has a name. He's a man. Uh, this woman uh, doesn't have a name. At least her name is not used here in this passage. Uh, a woman's testimony was not even acceptable in court. They had no rights in that society. <clears throat> Simon is a Pharisee, which means that he was a respected member of his culture, of his society, and he was a religious man, a moral person. This woman is not respected. In fact, she's likely despised, a despised member of society uh, because the text says she lived a sinful life, which means she's irreligious, she's immoral as a person. But Jesus, Jesus affirms the woman. And he rejects the, the man. He rejects Simon. So we need to understand why. We need to kind of put the pieces together here to understand why that happened. And so today we're going to learn three things about their approach, about their posture, and lastly then, what do they receive? We're going to learn about the approach of both. That's going to teach us how we approach Jesus, what kind of posture they had, which teaches us what kind of posture we should have, and then lastly, uh, what they received, which is going to teach us what we receive. First, we're going to look at the approach. First, uh, you need to understand the context. This is ancient times. It's the Near East. At a banquet, you didn't eat at a table. Everyone reclined by a table. And you didn't wear shoes. You didn't wear your sandals. Your feet were away from the table. And there were a lot of people then walking around the house. You see, today, all of our parties, 
uh, they're closed. You have uh, invitations. But in ancient times, people off the street, like this woman, people off the street could just come into your banquet and kind of listen in to the conversations and watch the people as they're, as they're around and, and enjoying the banquet. In verse 36, Jesus is invited uh, by a Pharisee, Simon, to his house for a banquet, for a meal. And in verse 37, this is when a woman who lived a sinful life in that town, that's a euphemism, it means that she was a prostitute. Uh, she learns that Jesus is eating at that house, and so she comes in, and she approaches Jesus. What does she do? She comes in with an alabaster jar of perfume, and in verse 38, she stood behind Jesus. We're not even sure if Jesus really even recognized her at this point. She stood behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, and she begins to wet his feet with her tears, and then she wipes his feet with her hair, and then she kisses his feet, and then she, perform, she pours perfume on Jesus' feet. Remember, this is the ancient Near East, really, really hot. And ancient roads, they were not like our roads today. First of all, there was no waste management system, which means that there's trash everywhere. It smells everywhere you walk, and these people, they're wearing open-toed sandals, and so their feet are incredibly dirty. Uh, they're smelly. In fact, there are laws that were in place when you entered into a house. Even slaves, bond servants, were not required to pour perfume or, or to wash the feet of, of, of the people who enter into the house. It was that repulsive. So when you actually come into a banquet, because of your dirtiness, because of the smell, because you've been walking around all day, you walked everywhere, Slaves or servants, they would pour perfume on your head or oil on your head or they may, they may pour perfume on your feet, you see. But, uh, I mean, it was a common luxury that was offered uh, to care for a person's feet and to help with the odor. I mean, that way it takes the edge off the smell. But here's this woman. Why is she weeping? This woman, she sees Jesus. She approaches Jesus She's overcome. She's overwhelmed with emotion and she begins to weep and her tears are falling and they're falling on Jesus' feet and she wipes, she kneels down. What does she do? She lets her hair down. She undoes her hair and then she starts to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair. You see? And everyone, they're in the room. They're gasping. They're repulsed by this. And then what she does is she starts to pour uh, this alabaster jar of perfume. She starts to pour it all over Jesus' feet, this perfume. It's a captivating narrative. What's it mean? When I first started looking at this text, it was easy to focus on the woman. Uh, this incredible act of sacrifice, this incredible act of humility. But this narrative is really about two people. It's about the woman and the host of the banquet. It's about the woman and about Simon. And the text is saying, whenever you see this, the text is saying we're all one or the other. That's what the text is saying. We're all like one or the other in a sense in terms of how we approach Jesus. Notice this woman, he, she clearly wants to see Jesus. She wants to encounter Jesus, meet Jesus. She wants to touch Jesus. But verse 36, Simon, he's one of the Pharisees. He's the one that invites Jesus to dinner. Remember, at this point, by now, the Pharisees, they all hate Jesus. Simon, however, openly invited Jesus to dinner. You need to understand, to invite somebody over your house for a meal, that was an incredibly intimate overture in, that, in those ancient times. What Simon is saying is, without getting into it, I mean, I want to know you. I want to be intimate with you. Simon, why, Simon is willing to risk uh, critique. He's willing to risk even persecution, maybe from his family or his peers, other rabbis or Pharisees. 
So he's openly inviting Jesus to this banquet, risking the persecution of his own peers and family. I mean, this is an amazing gesture. But by the end of this passage, what happens? Jesus essentially rejects Simon, and he honors the woman. In most, in most narratives, Pharisees usually, at the least, they're indifferent towards Jesus. You don't see that here. Here you see two people, and they both want to get to know him. And yet, in his own house, Simon is rejected. That's an insult. And in his own house, this woman, this prostitute, is welcomed and honored. Why? And the answer, Luke is trying to tell us, that Simon is only willing to go so far for Jesus, while this woman is willing to go all the way, is willing to give him her life. How do you figure that? A couple things. One, Simon is detached, whereas this woman it gets very close and personal with Jesus. Notice in verse 39, after the woman does what she does to Jesus, look at Simon's response. I mean, it's, he's, dis, he's disdainful. If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him. And what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. In other words, if Jesus is really who he says he is, if Jesus is really God, then he would know who this woman is, so he can't be God. Because if he knew who this woman was, he wouldn't let this woman touch her. But he lets this woman touch her. He lets this woman do what she did. Uh, and so he can't be God, and he can't be holy. And he's just thinking this. And Jesus, in verse 40, answers him. What does he say? Verses, verse 44, he says, Simon, I came to your house. You didn't even give me any water for my feet. So this woman wets my feet with her tears and wiped, wiped my feet with her hair. You didn't so much as give me a kiss in the ancient times. That's how you greeted people. It was a very typical greeting. But this woman, she never stopped kissing my feet. You didn't even put oil on my head. It was a very intimate luxury when you ever, you invited somebody into your house for a banquet. It was something that was offered. But this woman, she poured her precious perfume all over my feet. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, Simon, you invited me to your house, but you never invited me into your heart. You've kept me at a distance. Jesus is on the periphery, and, and Simon is looking at Jesus. He's not worth the sacrifice. He's not worth much at all, according to Simon. I mean, it's way easier to follow Jesus as an example. Live a good life, be a good person, do some good things once in a while, but there's limits there, you see. We're going to put limits on how far you need to go. But here's the, and here's the problem. By only affirming the woman, Jesus is saying, look, it doesn't matter how well you lived. Because look at the woman. Did she live a good life? Was she a good person? No. And that's the point. Jesus is saying it doesn't matter how you lived. What matters is that you're forgiven. And the only way that you're going to receive that is if you have an intimate, personal relationship with me. You can come as you are. But you're never going to leave as you are. You see, religion always asks, are you living a good life? Or are you living a bad life? It's, it's, it's about how you lived. A lot of us, a lot of folks, I mean, we misunderstood way from the get-go. You grew up in the church. You may have misunderstood all your life, so it's really important that you pay attention. A lot of us grew up being taught, live like this, be like this. Jesus lived like this. Jesus did that. But in reality, what we've done is, instead of actually making or helping our children and us to become Christians, we've actually become really good Pharisees. 
And if that's the case, then you have a relationship with Jesus that doesn't have tears, that doesn't have weeping. You have a relationship with Jesus, uh, but you can still keep, you can still sustain your dignity. And it's not going to cost you that much. And see, but then you can't let your hair down. You can't let your hair down with Jesus, and ultimately, you're not that close to Jesus. You're not touching Jesus. Why was Simon so indignant? Verse 39, if Jesus is who he says he is, he wouldn't let this prostitute, this sinner, this dirty woman touch him. He should be more dignified than that. But he's not. You see, I thought he was a king. I thought he was wiser than that, nobler than that, more dignified than that, more religious than that, more faithful to God than that. I thought he was clean. You see, Simon, he lived a very clean life. He was a Pharisee, but he was detached from Jesus. That goodness kept him from Jesus. That goodness kept Jesus at bay. You see, if you can live a good life and do some good things once in a while and show yourself to be pretty good once in a while, God can be kind of kept at bay. God ends up in the periphery of your life. This woman... One, she must have heard about Jesus because the text says that when she learned that he was at that house, she had to go. And so she sees where Jesus is and what does she do? She pursues him. I need to see Jesus right there. I want to touch Jesus. She's, she wants to show love, demonstrate love to Jesus. Simon, he invites Jesus into his house. That looks like intimacy, an intimate overture, an intimate gesture, but he never lets Jesus in. Not all the way, so there are no tears. There's no letting your hair down. There's no sacrifice. There's no cost. There's no love demonstrated. He's detached, totally detached. Secondly, this woman, she approaches Jesus with no terms, without any terms. Simon, he approaches only on his own terms. That's like a lot of us in the church today. We're only going to do things on our terms. What does that mean? This woman she brings uh, a jar. It's an alabaster jar of perfume. You need to know that's very expensive. It was typically a small jar. Uh, you could wear that jar around your neck in some cases. And the jar had a little opening, not wide enough that you could pour. It was actually so that you can unplug. And think about this. Uh, it would, when you unplug it, it would let the aroma out so that you would smell nice. Uh, you got you to know this. In ancient times, a woman, I mean, how, how she looked and how she smelled, that's how she was noticed. They didn't have careers. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a career thing back then for women. They didn't have any rights. And so this jar of perfume, the, it was an alabaster jar filled with perfume. It was very expensive. It was, it was likely an inheritance, some sort of heirloom that was passed down. And it wasn't made to pour. And so, but this woman, she, in order for this woman to pour out any of the perfume, perfume, she would have to break the neck of the jar. It would ruin the jar. It would ruin the value of the jar. What does this woman do? She pours out the perfume, which means she had to break the jar. So now this jar and the perfume, totally useless, poured over some guy's foot. And this woman, she's a prostitute. So this marginalized woman who's out of every social circle, every economic circle, she's poor. That's why she's resorting to prostitution. She's out of every cultural circle and religious circle. And she sacrifices the one thing that meant anything to her. The one thing that she wore around her neck. It, was, it, was, it meant something to her. It was, uh, it, was, it was the only thing that was a sum of her value, her legacy, her inheritance, her worth. That was culturally significant. It signified, this is what makes me pretty. This is what makes me clean. It smells clean. Once you break that jar and pour out that stuff, you have nothing and you are nothing. Why does she do it? 
It's because if Jesus is who she believes he is, he's worth it all and more. He's worth it all. And we know this. If anything is worth something in your life, you're willing to pay a huge price for that. You're willing to give up a lot. Depending on what it's worth to you, you will give up a lot. You'll be willing to give up your treasure. One thing you're not going to do is you're not going to come on your own terms. And she approaches Jesus. I'm a mess. I've got nothing. I'm worth nothing. Nobody here cares about me. And now without that jar, I'm penniless. And nobody cares about me. I'm friendless. And without an inheritance, a legacy, I am powerless. I've got no leverage in society. I've got nothing that says, yes, I'm an attractive woman. I'm a beautiful person. I smell clean, smell nice. But I'm giving it all up. I'm giving up my treasure because you are that special. You are now my treasure. I will do anything for you. Friends, there are people in this room right now. You're here to explore what it means a Christian. And you're welcome here. I want you to experience Jesus. And you're here because you want to experience Jesus. That, you know what that means? Right now, you are in that house. You are in Simon's house. And you've got two journeys in front of you. You can take the journey of Simon, his journey of faith, or you can take the woman's journey and her journey of faith. Either Jesus is just an experience for you in this time and place, in this moment, or Jesus becomes your life. Which journey are you on? What's the problem with Simon? I mean, Simon wants to know Jesus too, but not at the cost of shifting his entire life. Not at the cost of giving up anything valuable. In fact, Jesus says, you didn't even give me water for my feet. You didn't even give me a kiss, a greeting. You didn't give me any oil. Well, then you're not willing to give me anything of worth. You see? A lot of us are like that. We go to God mainly because it's what we've always done. A lot of us grew up in a church and it's time to go back to church. We go to God because it's what you did when you were young or then you migrate in college. In fact, how else are you going to make friends? We go to God because we're single. Some of us, we go to God because we're curious. But you're not willing to pay the cost. Or maybe God is just, you go to God because of your goals, but you're not going to God for God. And so you want the power of Jesus, but you don't want the person of Jesus. You want the status of being known by Jesus, known by leaders in the church, known by other people, but you don't want to submit to Jesus. You want the thrill of relationship with Jesus, but you don't want the responsibility that comes with that relationship with Jesus. You want the thrill of being called by Jesus, you don't want the you don't want the responsibility of being called by Jesus. Some of us, you know, uh, we want to know Jesus. We want to pursue Jesus. We want to love Jesus. But you don't want to give up our, your wealth. You don't want to give up your reputation. You want to give up the fun. Right now I'm young. You want to give up your sex life. You're willing to give up your body for that dude, but you're not willing to give up your body for, for Jesus. We have career folk here. Lots of career folk. You're afraid to give up your wealth. You're afraid that it's going to change your drive, your pursuits, your position. I'm going to ask you a question. Who are we to say that God, who we say is king, can ask for anything from us except our wealth or career or love lives? 
How can you say, well, he can be my savior, but not my Lord? I mean, he could command things at his word. Let there be light, and there was light, but you can't dare. Please don't ask me for everything from, me, from my life. Either Jesus is all God, he's all Savior, or he's all Lord, or he's none of these things. And you're going to overlook him. You're going to miss him. And you're going to miss him because you've got all these conditions. You've got all these terms that you come with before you even really see who Jesus really is. And, and then you get angry when you ask for things and you're denied. That's Simon. Jesus says, Simon, you don't get it and you don't get me. Verse 47 though, but this woman, she loved much. And verse 48, so she's forgiven. That's my love. Thirdly, this woman, she approaches, she gives up her dignity. She approaches with no dignity. Simon, his dignity is all he's got. It's all he's got. She, this woman, she wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. That means she lets her hair down, which was considered an, a, a huge disgrace in ancient times. A woman would never let her hair down in public. You only did this at home and never in front of strangers, and especially you don't do this in front of men. Your hair was your glory. It was your private honor in ancient times. It's what made you feel beautiful. And so what this woman does is she lets down her hair. She lets down her glory. And, and what does she do? She wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. The feet then those roads, in those circumstances, they were considered the dirtiest part of your body because of all the trash and the heat and the quality of our shoes and, and you're walking everywhere and the dust is everywhere, the smell is everywhere. There's disease caked into your feet. And so Jesus' smell and that trash and the dirt is all getting sucked up and absorbed by this woman's beautiful hair. You see, she's giving up her glory and so in a way, what she's doing, she undignifies herself. She surrenders her glory. She says all the things that society says, this is what makes you beautiful, I'm surrendering that to you. I'm giving it up for you. And by doing that, what she's saying is I'm sacrificing my glory. I'm sacrificing my beauty because you are now my glory and you define what makes me beautiful. I'm giving up my dignity because you are my ultimate source of dignity. In a world that says you need to be seen, you need to, you need to you know, grab, go up to the top, fight your way up to the top, seek glory, flaunt your beauty. And, and we use our wealth to do that. We use our careers to do that. We use our looks and popularity, just our, racial, our, our, our social capital. And, and, and this woman, she says, I'm going to give it all up. It's an intentional act of lowering yourself. Why? Well, secondly, second point, we've got to look at their posture. In verse 40, Jesus already knows what Simon is thinking. And uh, what he says is, Simon, I got something to tell you. And this man is thinking, oh, okay, now he's going to explain. Now I'm going to hear it about this woman. He says, I got a story to tell you. Verse 41, there are two men, and they owed a certain amount of money to a money lender. One owed 500 denarii, the other owed 50. In other words, one person owed 50, 10 times more than the other. But neither of them had the money to pay it back. And so this, this wealthy man cancels the debts of both. Now, which of these men loved him more? And he's asking Simon. He's looking Simon in the eye and asking him directly. Not what Simon expected. What's he really saying? What he's saying is, Simon, here's the problem. One, you don't see your poverty. 
Simon, when he looks at this woman who's got no reputation, he's a sinner. Because of her sinfulness and because of his goodness, he doesn't see his real condition. In fact, his goodness gets in the way of him getting close to Jesus because he doesn't see his condition. You see, in Jesus' parable, there are two people and they both owe uh, this, this wealthy person. And they're both poor. They can't pay the debt. In ancient times, if you can't pay a debt, what happens? There's no bankruptcy court back then. You either went to prison or you had to become a slave and work off that debt for the, pretty much for the rest of your life. And it doesn't matter then, in the end, it doesn't matter what Jesus is saying. It doesn't matter how much you owe. 500 times, 550 times, 500 denarii, 50 denarii. You know, one person can go 500 times more than the other, 10 times more. It doesn't matter how much you owe. What matters is how much you can pay back. How much you can pay back. And Jesus is saying is everyone here owes a kind of debt to me. It's a sin debt. And no one here can pay it back. It's too great. You see, Simon, maybe because he only, he's the guy that only owes 50 denarii. And this woman, maybe she's the person that owes the 500 Simon lived a, a pretty good life. This woman lived a very broken, sinful life. But Jesus says, it doesn't matter. Both of you owe me, and none of you can pay me. Neither of you can pay. But Simon's posture is what? I'm a pretty good person. In fact, he's looking down on Jesus. I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I just, I'm coming to Jesus. I just want some improvement because look at me. In society, I'm known. I've been brought up and raised. I have a legacy People view me, I'm a, he's a Pharisee, he's intellectual, he's wealthy, likely married with children, a healthy life in a healthy neighborhood with healthy friends and a healthy retirement. I'm doing pretty good. Everyone's telling me I'm doing pretty good. So I need Jesus because I'm intrigued by him. I need some improvements. Teacher, he says, I test well. I pass all the tests. Jesus says it doesn't matter. It's astounding. What matters is, do you know how lost you are, but that you can be found? Do you know how dead you are, but you could be made alive? Because sin is more than just obeying or breaking rules. Sin is, essentially what sin is, what happens, sin is the outcome of what, who you think is in control over your life. In other words, the problem with the world is, you think you're good enough and wise enough and smart enough and wealthy enough to take care of yourself, to live apart from God. You think you, you're sufficient. But you owe a debt. So no matter how much money you have, no matter how many skills you have, no matter how good looking you are, no matter how well liked you are, you still owe me a debt that you cannot pay with any of those things. Secondly, because of that posture, he doesn't see the cost. Because he doesn't see how much he owes, he doesn't know how much it costs to free somebody. The woman, she saw the cost. And look, she approaches Jesus. She is so moved. What does she do? She gives up everything. She gives up her life. And Jesus is saying salvation is much like the forgiveness of a debt. This woman, she recognizes she had a huge debt. Through and through in the Bible, over and over, especially in the book of Luke, you see that the people who recognize, the people who are poor, who are friendless, uh, social mar socially marginalized, they're the ones who are primed to see the debt. 
That's why Jesus embraces it. it. It's not because you're poor, you're in. It's not because you lived a bad life, you're in. But when you live a bad life, more than people who live a good life, you recognize you're lost. When you're poor, you recognize you have need. She's primed. That's her posture. The forgiveness of debt, that's what salvation is. It's the forgiveness of a debt. This woman recognizes her debt. She saw it, she knew it, and when she saw Jesus, Jesus can cancel this debt. That's why he tells a story like that, you see? But how does any debt get forgiven? I mean, does it just magically disappear? I wish. Y'all got mortgages? It doesn't magically disappear. You're thinking about buying a house? I'm going to tell you right now. It doesn't magically disappear. Nowhere at any point in time. I know that somebody has school loans and they may get, you know, put away or, you know, uh, deferred or, for, you know, there's a forbearance. Your mortgage doesn't work that way. When you sign that paperwork, you are bound. For life, you are bound. How does it get forgiven? Somebody has to pay. If you owe, you got to pay. When you pay, the debt's paid. It's canceled. But if you can't pay, in ancient times, you were held captive. You went to prison. It's not like jail today. It's not like prison today. You went to like, it's ancient jail. It's ancient prison. You were tortured. You were beat up. Or the lender could forgive you. But if you're forgiven, then who's paying? Somebody's still paying. The lender is paying. The lender is swallowing the debt. The lender is paying the price. Either way, somebody has to pay the price for the debt to be forgiven. Somebody has to absorb the debt. In that parable, when the lender absorbs the debt, he's experiencing pain. doesn't matter how wealthy he is. That's a good amount of money that he's giving up. It's still going to hurt. You see that? We say, well, you know, I believe in a God that loves everyone, so he's just going to let everyone go. That's the kind of loving God in the Bible that I believe. Okay, well, I got three issues with that. One, a God that just lets everyone go also lets Hitler go. You cool with that? He just lets him go. You okay with that? No? No? Oh, so you're saying that there is a standard. Whose standard? Secondly, that idea of a God of love where he just lets everyone go, it sounds good, but think about this. If you apply that, it's not that good. Think about this. If you've ever really been hurt before, I mean, I'm talking about really, really hurt, really betrayed, really damaged. There are people in this room, they are working through some damage that was incurred by somebody else outside of here, and it was so painful and deep, it's going to take a while to work it off. You're still working it through. It still affects you every day. It impacts your every day. A God, a God that just lets it go is not a loving God then. A God that is not a God of justice is not a loving God. Only a God that says, look, because of my love for you, I will not let a single sin, a single wrong that has been incurred against you go unaccounted for. That is a loving God. First of all, that's a holy God. He's doing it because of his holiness. And he's saying, I will not let a single wrongdoing go unpunished. That is a loving God. Why? Because somebody has to pay. Or else sin wins. That person gets away with it ultimately. You see? And that means that God is then, he's not loving. He's not just. He's not good. And three, think about this. Think about this logically. If you've ever been hurt, if you've ever been sinned against in a way that has really damaged you, what do you say? Do you say, no, it's all good. It's all about love. You see, that's kind of what I'm about. That's what I believe God's about that. That's what I'm about. So I'm just going to let him go. No. 
No, you, if you've really been damaged, you're working it through. It is brutal and it's painful. And the more you absorb it and not do anything back in return, that's the elements of forgiveness. You're not going to fight back or punish that person. No matter how much you're tempted to do that, you are incurring the cost on your own. You are absorbing the pain. Deep inside, your soul is crying out for justice. And you're absorbing it all yourself, you see. You need justice. So when you forgive, what you're saying is, I'm willing to pay the price. I'm willing to absorb the pain of that debt. Forgiveness is brutal. Forgiveness is painful. And that's how it is between finite, created beings such as us than how much more for an infinite God who created us. A God whom we sinned against infinitely. Simon didn't see the cost of that sin. Well, what did these people receive? Last point, what did they receive? What did Simon receive? Essentially, Simon received a parable. He received a lecture. But what did he want? See, he, all he wanted was an intellectual experience of Jesus. He didn't want Jesus. He didn't want to be shaped by Jesus. So essentially, he got what he wanted. He got a lesson. He got a Bible study. You see, in the end, we're all going to get a version of Jesus that we're looking for. Not necessarily the version of Jesus that we say we're looking for. We all say we're looking for the same thing. We're going to get what we're really looking for from Jesus. Simon wants a Jesus that's distant, who's not that close, and that's what he got. Jesus literally turns to the woman after he tells Simon that story and asks him that question. Simon says, well, it's the one, it's the one that was forgiven much. Jesus then turns to the woman. He turns his back on Simon. He rejects him. You see, what did the woman receive? Oh, the woman received so much. One, notice, she demonstrates this amazing act of love for Jesus, and she receives forgiveness. Verse 47, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. Now, it seems like what Jesus is saying is, she's forgiven because she loved much. But that's not what he's saying. How do you know? Because in that same verse, verse 47, what does Jesus say? For he who has been forgiven a little loves little. Right? Therefore, she who's forgiven much loves much. And he leads with that. He says, she is forgiven for she loves much. You see? In other words, your love, the way you demonstrate love, love for Jesus and then love for others, that's a fruit. You don't start with that. It, that's the outcome. It's a response to the depth of your experience of forgiveness. It's an indicator of how deeply you've been forgiven, how deeply you've been loved by God. For example, if you don't see your own sin and somebody actually confronts you, you've got friends who confront First of all, that's an amazing act of courage when they do that. When somebody comes up to you and critiques you, what happens? Your heart instantly bristles. It hardens. Why? Because the reality of your sinfulness is still a surprise to you. It hasn't gone that deep. It hasn't been applied. But when you take the doctrine of sin, first of all, in general, and it becomes specific, somebody comes to you with that doctrine and says, this is who you are. This is what I see. When you do apply the doctrine of sin in your life, coupled with what you understand about the doctrines of grace, you've been forgiven. There is the power to see it, to receive it, to hear it, and still love the person. That person is amazing for what they, what they risked to tell you this. doesn't matter how close they are. It's a risk. 
to still love that person, it's a fruit. Now, a failure to apply that doctrine of sin, a failure to apply the reality of your your sin in your life, that's going to make you then unable to hear other people. Is that you? Unable to hear even the closest friends confronting you, critiquing you? It's going to make you unable to forgive. It's going to harden you. And ultimately, it's going to make you unable to accept a person's critique about you. But the gospel makes us humble. You're going to see your sin. And yet on one hand, you're going to see, wow, this is a lot worse than I, than I thought. And yet you're going to have sustained joy that leads to love because you're forgiven. And so you're not fighting. You're going to be open. You're not defensive. You're not going to make excuses. Now, similarly, if you see your debt as small, then Jesus didn't die for much. So why would there be any reason to be grateful? You're not going to have much gratitude. Why would there be any need to be generous? You didn't receive that much. Jesus didn't do that much for you. Then there's no reason to love others. There's no reason to love Jesus, really. There's no reason to sacrifice. There's no reason to pay any cost. But if you see the reality of your sin, you're going to see that there was a debt that you held that was so great you could not pay with your life even. And yet you've been totally absolved, totally forgiven. There's the gratitude. And that gratitude overflows into what? Into love. A love for Jesus. And that that spills out then and overflows into other people. You see? You can forgive. You can sacrifice. You can pay the cost. That's this woman. This woman, she received forgiveness first. That's the first thing she gets. But in that, she gains a capacity to love Jesus. A capacity to love Jesus that did not come from herself then that results in a genuine, and a genuine gratitude and sacrifice. You see that? Secondly, verse 48, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And in verse 50, he says, your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you, and so you are forgiven. Go in peace. There's a peace. Forgiveness leads to a deep peace. That means that Jesus Christ now satisfies your soul. Why do we need that wealth? Why do we hold on to that wealth so tightly? Why do we hold on to those relationships so tightly or that one relationship that you know is not good for you, it's not good for your spiritual health, it's not good for you, and yet you're holding on to it so tightly? Why do we always pursue that perfect life to be approved by others for other people's love? Because then I know I'm secure. Then I know I'm loved. You see, then I know that, that I have worth. But here's this woman. Jesus has become so valuable to her She just needs to be with Jesus. She just needs to touch Jesus. She loves, she demonstrates love to Jesus. Why? The love of Christ has already changed her life. Whatever it is that she heard, when she learned that Jesus was there, she made a beeline to Jesus. You see? It shaped her life. It changed her. That's why she sacrificed. There's no more need for that jar. That was her wealth. That was her legacy. There's no more need for that perfume. That was her beauty. There's no more need for the men in her life. That was her worth. You see? Her beauty was her worth. Her, that jar, that was her legacy. There's no more need. Thirdly, that's why she wasn't afraid anymore. That's why she wasn't afraid to damage her reputation. I mean, she hardly had a reputation, but she was no longer afraid of of what she was going to do in front of other people. Simon, he had every reason to be afraid. He was a respectable Pharisee. He's holding this banquet. There are all types of people there. They're looking at him and watching him as the owner of this home. Jesus is there, yet this woman, she's a prostitute. She is making her way through this crowd. 
can you imagine? I mean, she hears and she has to, it's, did she give herself a pep talk? She walks into this banquet and she just knows people are looking at her. And she's fighting her way through the crowd. Where's Jesus? She's looking for Jesus. She doesn't know what he looks like. Where's Jesus? Are you Jesus? She's looking around. Is that Jesus? And, and, and everywhere she goes, people are kind of like, oh my gosh, like, what are you doing here? And, and she's kind of making her way through this room and navigating with this, with this precious thing that she's got, that she's holding. And what does she do? I mean, people are gasping around her. And when she lets her hair down, people are like, whoa, this is nuts. And then when she starts wiping his feet with her hair, they're just repulsed by what she's doing. Why did she do it? This undignified act was an act of vulnerability, an act of surrender. It takes a certain kind of boldness, a certain kind of courage to do that, to go against your culture, to go against uh, social norms, What's she saying for, I'm giving up my wealth because now I have you. I'm giving up whatever leverage I have. You know, a woman's beauty is her leverage. That's in those days. She's saying, hey, I've got, I'm giving that up. That's the power that I had over other people. It's the only power I had. But now I see you. And my looks, my beauty, my glory doesn't matter. I've gained real power through this. Think about this. This woman is poor. She is, she is a prostitute. She is lowly. But that brokenness is actually what gets her to Jesus. It's what, it's what gets her the boldness to go see Jesus. A lot of us here in guilt, is there shame in your life? If that shame brought you here, if that shame brings you to Jesus, God is working through that brokenness to give you new life. And she eventually gets Jesus. Think about 2,000 years later. Are we studying Simon? No. We're still learning from this woman. She's still, from her demonstration of boldness and courage and humility and sacrifice, this is biblical femininity. This is biblical feminine power. Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Friends, I'm going to tell you this right now. A lot of us were saying, well, you know, I, mean, I need some more books on generosity. I need more books on giving because this is an area of my life uh, that I don't, I don't really give a lot. I've been a Christian all my life. We say that a lot. I'm a, I've been a Christian for a very long time. And who gave you that job? God gave me this job. God gave me this house. God gave me my car. God gave me all these things. God gave me my children. And, and I have all this stuff. I amassed all this wealth, but I don't give proportionally. I don't give as, as an act of uh, demonstration of just my love for Jesus. Can you give me some books? What can I read? What can I listen to? Friends, I'm going to tell you right now. This is the answer you're going to get from me. It's not education you need. You need faith. This is a faith issue, not an education issue. You don't learn, you don't study and take an exam to pass sacrifice. You experience it. You're brought up in it. Two thousand years, we're still talking about her, and Jesus says, "Your faith has saved you." There's the power. There's the validation. There's the embrace and the love, the certainty, the assurance that this woman needed all her life, and she receives it. What about you? What about you?
Have you? What's your jar? The sum of your, your net worth? The sum of your wealth and your status? Where are you placing that? What's your perfume? What makes you smell nice? What makes you look good in front of other people? The sum of your beauty and your glory? These people, they're like, who is this who even forgives sins? Who is this person? What did this woman see that powered her love, that powered her sacrifice in tears for Jesus? She must have seen Jesus. What she heard, she said, this is real. She believed it. She trusted it. She saw who Jesus is, and she's putting it all together. These Pharisees, these religious folks, for some reason, they hate Jesus. She's seeing something there, and she's putting it all together, and she realizes what's going to happen one day. And she says, she's looking forward at Jesus' tears. She's looking forward to Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus' suffering, Jesus' blood, that his blood would be poured out for her on the cross when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I've lost the Father. This is my legacy. This is my inheritance. This is my security, the sum of my worth, the sum of my power, my wealth. It's all gone, and God has turned away from me. God has detached from me. God has become impersonal to me me. No longer personal. God doesn't kiss me. You know what kind of kiss he received? The kiss of betrayal, the kiss of death from Judas. God doesn't kiss my feet. You know what happened to his feet? They were nailed to a cross. God doesn't adorn him with oil or perfume. He says, you will be like perfume. You will be spilled out for the people. And so they placed a crown of thorns on his head and blood is just streaming down. He was a street, he was his body is just a covered mess with his blood. Limbs barely holding together, exposed. You see that? This is his glory. Jesus said, that is my glory, my death. Read the gospel according to John. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This was going to be his glory. You want to see how beautiful Jesus is? He's saying, look to the cross and what I do there. Then you will see who I really am. Then you will see my beauty. When I sacrifice my beauty, then you will see my glory. When I sacrifice my glory, and instead, Jesus' body then, he's like that jar. It was broken and, it, and his blood is like the perfume just spilling out. On the cross, Jesus becomes ultimately penniless. The ultimate poverty. His friends rejected him and abandoned him, but he was abandoned by God. That is the ultimate friendlessness. And so he empties himself of his power and he becomes utterly powerless. He gave up all glory, all beauty. Why did the woman shift her life at, the, at, at great cost for Jesus? Because she saw that Jesus, the high king, the ultimate king, will shift his entire life and his glory and his beauty for her, for someone like her. Gave it all up for someone like her, for his people. And Jesus Christ, the cross is the ultimate undignity. He undignifies himself. And he says, I am not seen here. I'm not known. I'm, I've lost glory. I've lost beauty. Why? To pay our sin debt. He swallowed it whole on the cross for us. Friends, on the cross, Jesus, in tears, 
he cried tears. He bled blood. He died a death to wipe our sins away. So this woman is taking on Jesus' filth in her hair, in her glory. And on the cross, Jesus' glory, what does he do? He empties himself like the perfume. And he takes on all of our stench and filth. And he wipes it away in tears. That's his love. Jesus is looking at this woman doing exactly what he will be doing on the cross one day. And he says, you, it's your faith that saved you. You see that? And when Jesus, forgiveness is brutal. Forgiveness is painful. So painful, Jesus died. Somebody had to pay and Jesus pays it all. And when he was done, he says, it is finished. That's a transactional word in the Bible. Tetelestai, it's an accounting term for what? The transaction is made, the debt is paid. He sacrificed his glory so we would have glory. He sacrificed his beauty so we would be made beautiful in him. And this woman was willing to sacrifice everything because she knew that one day Jesus would take on all of our cosmic sin and filth and guilt and shame. And so he sacrificed it all for us. Why did she give up the jar and the perfume? Because Jesus became her treasure. Why did Jesus give up his life? Because we are his treasure. And when you see that you are Jesus' treasure, worth giving up everything for, he becomes your treasure. And you and he will be worth giving up everything for. I dare not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. They broke him like that jar. And they spilled his blood like that perfume. So to those of us here who say, I'm a Christian, do you love like this woman in response? Is he personal with you? Is Jesus personal with you? Is he worth everything for you? Have you given everything to him? Or are you like most people? You're gonna give to Jesus what means nothing to you, less to you, but just enough for others to be satisfied. And are you just inviting Jesus to be around in your house, but not getting too close? because you forgot what you owe. You forgot your debt. You forgot the cost. You forgot what he paid. And this passage is teaching us, remember. Remember him. Let's pray.